On December 4th, 1977, the world witnessed the coronation in a city um, called Bangui in Central Africa. The coronation of a man by his imperial name, his imperial majesty, um, King Bokasa I. Now the price tag for this man's coronation was a cool $25 million. It started at 10.10. At 10.10 a.m., the trumpets and the drums announced the royal procession. And the royal procession began with eight of Bokasa's favorite 28 children. I feel sorry for the others, don't you? Um, so they began to walk their way down this path that was um, a red carpet. Behind them was the, the, the heir to the throne, and his name was John Bedell Bokasa II. So behind the heir was one of Bokasa's favorite nine wives. Isn't that convenient, all right? Her name was Catherine. She was wearing a gown that cost $73,000. Some of your dads, you know how you'd feel about that because I saw prom was a couple weeks ago, and you feel like it was that, that expensive. The emperor, he arrived in a chariot that was driven by six horses, and he himself wore a robe that weighed 32 pounds. And listen to this. It was decorated with 785,000 pearls. And it also had gold embroidery. We've got a picture I'm going to show you here of a throne that he seated himself, that, which, which cost $2.5 million. He also had a crown that he had made, and it cost $2.5 million as well. My favorite part about the crown, if you can see it, is right in the middle, there was a diamond. This wasn't just any kind of diamond. This was an 80-carat diamond that was in the center of his crown that he wore. Now, unfortunately, his reign wasn't nearly as impressive as his um, coronation was. He lasted less than two years before he was overthrown by others that were living there in the city. Uh, of course, his coronation was absolutely ridiculous. But what this coronation goes to show you is what man will do when he is without limits in order to try to prove his worth, to try to prove this is how valuable, this is how important that I am. And of course, we're going to see that the story of Bokasa's coronation, it could not be any more opposite from the coronation of the true king of kings, the triumphal entry of the one true king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself. We're going to be in John chapter 12 this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. We're going to fast forward a little bit. We're staying in our study of John, but we're going to fast forward this, week, this Sunday and next Sunday as we are in Holy Week. And today we will look at the events of Jesus traveling into Jerusalem. And of course, next Sunday we will look at the greatest event the world has ever experienced. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. But as I always do, I want to give you a little bit of context to make sure that we're reading John chapter 12 in context, understand what's going on, what happened immediately before the scene where we are this morning. Right before this had just happened, um, John chapter 12, we know that Jesus had just raised Lazarus back from the dead. He was in um, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, the brothers and sisters. They were in their hometown of Bethany. And so word had begun to spread that this man who was dead is now alive. They also word had spread about this man named Jesus who had performed miracles and was claiming to be the Messiah. So the crowds were gathering now not just to see Jesus, 
But you can imagine what you would be like if you had heard, hey, there was a man who was dead and now he's alive again. So they wanted to see Lazarus as well. So Jesus is now leaving Bethany and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the story in John chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 12. Let's look at the first four verses. John 12, beginning in verse 12. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now the Jews who were living during this time of Jesus' life they, of course, had this, this vision. They had this preconceived notion of what the Messiah was going to be. They expected the Messiah was going to be what? He was going to be this military leader, and he was going to come, and he was going to lift up the, the forces of Israel, and they were going to overthrow the kingdom of Rome and overthrow the forces of Rome there. But when Jesus appears on the scene, they can almost taste it. They know this is our moment. This is when Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come and he's going to give us our military leaders, our orders, and we are going to overtake the Roman leaders. Jesus, he is the Messiah. Jesus, he is a victorious king, but he did not come in the way in which they had expected. Jesus, he came not to bring political salvation, not to save them from the reign of Rome, but instead, Jesus had come to bring spiritual salvation from the rule and the reign of sin. You see, for the Jews, they thought that their arch enemy was Rome. If we can just overthrow Rome, that, that, that's our main enemy. But for Jesus, he was focused on an enemy that was much more powerful, an enemy that had much more uh, might in themselves, and that enemy was death. And he came to defeat sin and death. So yes, Jesus, he is the victorious king that was prophesied about all throughout the Old Testament. But the victory that he uh, received, the victory that he is going to achieve, it didn't occur in the manner in which the Jews were anticipating. So in the verses that we just read, the people, as Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, they're waving what? Palm branches, right? They're waving palm branches. and They're laying their coats down to make a royal um, entrance for him. And then they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when they say that, they're actually quoting from the Old Testament. They're quoting from Psalm 118, where it says this in verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us what? Success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. When they, they proclaim Hosanna at the tri triumphal entry, literally what they are saying is save us now. See, Jesus, he was coming into the city and he was coming to provide salvation for the people. But the salvation that he is bringing to the people, it was not what the people in the crowd had envisioned. They just didn't get it, did they? They missed it. Now, let's give them a little bit of credit here. They did anticipate and they did recognize that Jesus was the anointed king. But he just wasn't the earthly king that they desired. He wasn't coming to give them um, the, the, the authority of overcoming the Roman oppression. 
See, Jesus, when he came, he didn't come with soldiers. He didn't come riding on a war horse. What did he come riding on? A what? A donkey. And by riding in on a donkey, what Jesus is doing is he is revealing exactly the kind of king that he really is. See, 500 years before this had even occurred, it had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Listen to what it says in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and what? Mounted. What's that next, next two words? On a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. Now, I know you're impressed with how quickly we've been moving in, in, the, in the book of John. That's a joke. Um, we're in chapter 3, and it's almost May. That's okay. Um, but in the first three chapters of John, what we have seen so far is the men and women who studied the law, the men and women who were priests, who were Pharisees, that they should have known what to expect when the Messiah came. They are the ones that what? They just missed it. They should have known better. They had the scripture. They had the Old Testament. They knew all of these things, but they are the ones that when Jesus is in their midst, they absolutely miss it. And here we have it once again. We see that what had been prophesied about 500 years before this moment, that the Messiah would come in riding on a donkey, when it occurs, they miss it. See, by riding in on a donkey, Jesus was saying that, look, I'm not like any other king or ruler that you've known. Jesus was a new kind of king. But they just didn't understand his purpose. They didn't understand what he was coming to do. See, the choice of Jesus riding in on a donkey, it reveals that Jesus, he will achieve victory. But the way that he will achieve victory is through humility. He will achieve it through meekness. And as a Messiah... He makes it clear that he is not just going to be a king for Israel. No, he's coming to be a king for every people, nation, and tribe. He has come to be a light to all nations, both the Jew and the Gentile. Let's keep reading in, in verse 20, 20 through 23. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, it's interesting here that both at Jesus' birth, remember there were wise men that came from the West and, and they were Gentiles. So at the beginning, there were Gentiles that came to see Jesus. And now, towards the end of his life, the Greeks, who also were Gentiles, they are coming to see Jesus as well. I don't want us to miss the point there. I think that John is being very careful to put that in there to show that, that Jesus, that he came to be a savior for all people, not just for the Jews, but he came to be a light, that he came to be a source of salvation for anyone who would call upon his name. In fact, if you keep reading ahead in verse 32, he says that. John 12, 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up, meaning on the cross from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So there must have been this great sense of anticipation as Jesus is, is making his entry into Jerusalem. And then I, I just, in my imagination, I have to believe that there was this hush that fell across the crowd when Jesus said that phrase, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
don't you think the crowd thought, this is it. This is the moment that he's going to give the marching orders. This is the moment that we are going to march in and that finally we are going to be the political leaders that he said that we would be. But once again, Jesus tells them, look, I'm sorry, but I am not coming in the way in which you had envisioned. Now we know from our study in John chapter 2, that word hour is very important. And Jesus uses it throughout his ministry. He talks about the hour. That hour is the moment in which he will provide redemption, that he will provide salvation for all mankind. That hour takes place when Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of the world, that he dies, that later he's, he's raised from the dead in his ascension. And now he's saying that that hour has come. You see, the only way, the only way that Jesus could have provided salvation for all mankind was to die, was to die on the cross. With no death, he couldn't have reproduced his life into every man and every woman and every nation. In fact, Jesus goes on in that very next verse, and he gives an illustration to show why he must die in order for salvation to come. Look at that next verse, verse 24. Jesus, he gives this illustration. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This illustration that Jesus is giving here, it really, it's quite simple. See, if you were to hold in your hand a kernel of wheat, you, you wouldn't be able to see what was inside that kernel. But inside that kernel, if it contained good seed, it could contain up to a million similar offspring in that one kernel. And I think what Jesus is saying is here is that in planting season, what does a farmer do with that seed? He takes it and he buries it into the ground, a tomb, if you will. And later that, that, that seed, it dies and it breaks forth from its encasement and it becomes a, a resurrection plant. It comes up from the ground and it reproduces what we would call resurrection fruit. But without the death, without the burial of that seed, there would be no fruit. There would be no productivity. But when each kernel dies, its life is what? It's reproduced over and over and over again, up to a million different times from that one seed that first had to go into the ground and die. Do you see what Jesus is trying to say here? What he's telling them is, look, I am going to fulfill my kingly role, but the way that I'm going to fulfill it is by dying. And by dying, I am going to reproduce my life into you. And you are going to be the fruit that you are going to share the gospel all throughout the world. Jesus continues explaining what this, this illustration means in verse 25. He says, whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus, he calls on his followers to identify with him. But how? Not by following their desires, not by following what they want to do with their life. But he says, if you want to follow me, you are going to submit your will to mine. You are going to die to yourself. You are going to set aside your desires. You're going to set aside what you want to do, and you are going to submit your will to mine. 
Jesus clearly says, he says, the only way that we will find life is if we first, what? Lose it. In essence, what he's saying is our potential will never be reached except through death to sin and denial to ourself. See, church family, Jesus died so that each and every one of us could have life. We are the great recipients of Jesus' death. He died in our place. And I hope that that message never gets old to you. That we never forget that Jesus didn't just die because he was, you know, man, he was just take, doing something nice for God. He didn't just die because, man, oh, well, I, I sinned a little bit. No, he died in your place. You deserved it. I deserved it. When we look at him, when we reflect upon the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we recognize he did what I deserved. He took my place on the cross. Jesus himself, he took the curse that our sin demanded. Paul says it this way in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We're going to look at that one verse in great detail on Friday night for our Good Friday service. Good Friday is my absolute favorite service that we have here as a church family. I hope that you'll make it a priority to be here. I don't think we can fully appreciate and fully celebrate the resurrection on Sunday of Easter Sunday until we first go through what it was like for Jesus to suffer and to die in our place on the cross. But just briefly, what that verse means is it's saying that when Jesus was on the cross, that he was cursed in our place. It says the full fury of God's wrath towards sin, it was all placed upon Jesus at that moment. God's wrath was poured out upon his son. Friends, Jesus is a king who would take the punishment that we deserve. And what happens as a result? Because he took the punishment that we deserve, then we have the ability to enjoy a life that we most certainly do not deserve. But if any of us want to experience this full life that God has designed for us, that he wants for us, the key is that we first must die to ourselves. Jim Ryan, who was a famous runner, he set a record for the mile when he was 18 years old. This is what he had to say about training and running. He said, I would run until I felt I couldn't take another step. Then I, would, then I felt my lungs were going to burst. When I came to that state, then I would run until I thought I was going to pass out. When I did this, I knew I was making progress. What's my point? The point is self-denial is the key. It's not just true in athletics. It's true in marriage. It's true in any relationship. It's true in our work that we would first die to ourselves, and that we would seek to live for someone so much greater. But it's a paradox, isn't it? But there, there, there are paradoxes all throughout Scripture. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Jesus said this in Matthew 20. So the last will be first and the first last. 1 Peter 5, 6, another paradox. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that at proper time he may what? Exalt you. So John 12, 24 is another example of a paradox that's being used. That unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and what? Dies, 
and it remains alone, but if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Church family, unless we die to ourselves, we will never become all that he has created for us to be. Paul put it this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, the, by, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, dying to self, it's a daily requirement if we are going to grow spiritually. Every single day, we must make sure that we die to ourselves. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're stagnant in your walk with the Lord, you feel like you're just not growing in your walk, maybe we need to lay down our life today. Maybe we need to lay down our personal desires and say, God, it's not my will, but yours be done. Maybe we need to once again say, God, I want to offer my body as a living sacrifice to you so that I can be used as an instrument of yours. But what does it practically look like to die to self? It's one thing to say, and we can say it over and over again, but but what does it mean that I'm going to die to myself? One thing it might mean is that I'm going to accept the circumstances where I'm in. Instead of choosing to be resentful, instead of choosing to look on the other side and say, well, they have it better. It must be, I wish I could be them, that we're going to accept where we are and say, God, allow me to be used by you for your glory and for your kingdom right now where I am. Maybe to die to self would say, God, you know, within me, I just want to be friends with this person that I work with. I don't want to cause conflict. I don't want to cause disunity. But Lord, I know that you're calling me to share the gospel. You're telling me that I'm supposed to share the hope that I have within me. And I know it's going to cause discomfort, but I'm going to risk humiliation. I'm going to risk what it might mean to share my faith with them because I know that's dying to self and doing what you've called me to do. For all of us, Dying to ourself, it means that we're going to live according to God's standards. We're going to live according to this book, even if it means in our own country that we're going to be labeled as weird or as outcast. That we desire that we're not going to be conformed by this world, but we're going to be transformed by the Word of God. One of the first Christian biographies that I ever read was this one. It was the autobiography of George Mueller. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. George Mueller is truly one of my my heroes. In England, he built five orphanages in his lifetime. He cared for over 10,000 orphans during his time. He would preach the gospel three times a week until he was 70, and then he retired. Oh, by the way, you know what he did when he retired at 70? For the next 17 years, he became a foreign missionary. From the ages of 70 to 87, he traveled to 42 different countries preaching every single day. From the ages of 70 to 87, he preached to over 3 million people. Now what's fascinating about George Mueller's testimony, if you read this book, what you'll see is that he never once directly asked people for money. He simply prayed, and God provided the money. It's also interesting is he never took a salary 
the last 68 years of his ministry. He simply trusted that God would give him whatever he needed to provide for his family, whatever God wanted him to provide for the orphans that were there. He never went into debt. He never took out a loan. And not one orphan ever went hungry. In today's currency, George Mueller literally prayed in millions of dollars. Someone one time asked George Mueller, they said, what has been the secret of your life? Listen to how he responded. There was a day when I died. He continued, I died to George Mueller. His opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will. I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or the blame even of brethren or of friends. Friends, when that happens, watch what God will do with that kind of person. This is, I don't care what the world thinks of me. I don't care whatever I'm going to do. I don't care about the opinions of the world. The only one that I'm living for is the approval, and I want to honor the Lord and Savior who gave his life for me. So let me ask you this morning. Are you holding anything back that's keeping you from a full and complete commitment to Jesus Christ? Do you secretly have a desire that I want to live with one foot in the world and one foot in God's will? I still want to have fun. I still want to obey the world's commands. I still want to make sure that people look up to me. I still want to make sure that they don't think that I'm strange. They don't think that I'm weird, but, but I'll come to church on Sundays. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray at dinner time. Friends, let me tell you, if you're a child of God and you're trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in God's will, it will only lead to utter and complete disappointment. The only way that you can be truly fulfilled as a child of God, the only way that you will ever find that you are living in the complete will of God is if you dive headfirst into God's will, saying, God, I want to honor you in every single area of my life. And it begins by dying to self. By the way, what's the reward for dying to self? He says it there in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Listen to the reward. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Paul tells us that when we honor the Lord, that we will find more joy, more peace, more contentment than we ever could imagine. 1 Corinthians 2.9, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, for who, what? God has prepared for those who love him. One commentary I read in preparation for this said, Our future coronation will make the world's coronation look like children playing with mud pies. Of all the ways that God could have chosen for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem to begin that last week of his life, he chose a donkey. He came in humility. He didn't come in on a war horse. He didn't come in as a military leader with legions of soldiers. He came not as a military leader, but as a victorious king who would conquer sin and death once and for all. Friends, listen to me. 
I read that passage of scripture and I see how God ordained from the very beginning of time that Jesus would come in meek and mild as a servant. And it doesn't mean that he was weak. Don't get that confused. But he came in as a servant. And I wonder how in the world can any Christian have any sense of pride? That is the antithesis of Jesus himself that we would think that we have anything to offer the Lord, that we have anything to offer anyone else apart from the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given to us. I pray that each and every one of us, that we would seek to be the hands and feet and the arms and the heart of Jesus to others. But it all begins by humbling ourselves, by dying to ourselves, And by saying, God, it's not my will, but I'm coming with open hands. Would you use my life in whatever way you see fit? And whatever you say, Lord, the answer before you tell me is yes. Hear my Lord. Send me. Would you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for the path of salvation that you have provided for us. A costly death that came through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Lord, I thank you for his obedience to you. Lord, that we too can have salvation if we would turn from ourselves, if we would die to ourselves, and instead that we would turn and trust in you and find more joy, more contentment than we ever could imagine. Lord, I pray that if there is someone here today that has never trusted you for salvation, that today they would repent of their sins and they would find a Savior willing, waiting, and desiring to welcome them in to your family. Lord, for those of us that have trusted you, would we look into our hearts this week and as we go throughout this week and we reflect on the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, would we look into our hearts and if there's any area of our life that doesn't match Jesus' life, would the Holy Spirit convict us of that area and would we seek to, to become more like Jesus as we reflect and as we study on your word? Would we all come before you each and every day with open hands, not with a closed hands, but with open hands saying, Lord, here's my life. Show me what you want. And the answer is yes. I'll follow you no matter what you ask of me. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.